this like incentive structure is a big part of why we're seeing such incredible polarization. Even the really respectable papers are leaning more and more into like clickbaity, rage-baity tactics in order to maintain their, their market share. On average, the average person just doesn't know where to go to get reliable information anymore. People don't tune into the news to find out what the facts are. They find out to get the emotional hit. It just feels like there's this, this force, like a razor blade coming up through the fabric of reality, of like shared reality that is trying to like bifurcate everything. Hey guys, Trigonometry needs your help. We took a big risk creating the show. And for us to keep doing the incredible work that you all love, we need your support. That's the only way we're going to stay independent and create content that you won't be able to find anywhere else. There is no other podcast where you'll hear interviews with Nigel Farage one week and the next week you've got Aaron Bastani, the founder of left-wing show Navara Media, on the same platform. You know the mainstream media aren't honest. You know they've been caught lying again and again. You know they can't be trusted. The only way to change that is to make a stand and support independent content creators like Trigonometry to produce better and more honest content. We have big plans and we'll shortly be announcing exciting new shows and more terrific interviews with huge guests. That isn't going to happen without your help. When you support us, you also get incredible extra content such as extended interviews with none of those irritating adverts and they'll be released 24 hours early just for you. We'll have exclusive bonus interviews that only you get to hear. Click the link on the podcast description or find the link on your podcast listening app to join us. Support us and help change the way we have conversations and make the world saner. What's this Moloch concept that you've come up with to describe where our media and new media ecosystem is going wrong? Um, well, I didn't come up with the Moloch concept. It actually comes from an old, um, originally it comes from this old Bible story about this uh, horrible cult that was so obsessed with winning wars, they were willing to sacrifice more and more of the things they cared about, um, up to and including their children, who they would sacrifice in a bonfire in this like burning effigy of this demon god thing called Moloch, in the belief that it would then reward them with um, you know, all the military power they could want. And so this sort of story became a kind of like synonymous with this idea of sacrificing too much in the name of winning. And like the the the, the forces of of when competition goes wrong, essentially. And then in, I think, 2014, Scott Alexander of Slate Style Codex, or now Astral Codex 10, um, wrote this amazing blog post called Meditations on Moloch, where he's like, he basically draw, connects the dots between all of these like mentions of Moloch throughout history and put it into, in, into like modern game theory terms. Mm -hmm. Because he noticed, he's like, it seems like there's this like mechanism where... The, the same sort of mechanism that is driving a lot of different problems in the world, you know, whether it's like tragedy of the commons type problems where um, companies will take, in, you know, shortcuts to get, you know, to, to stay, keep their share of the market or whatever, you know, like um, use cheap plastic pa packaging or something like that, because that's the most cost, of, cost efficient thing they can do. But then it's like creating all these negative externalities, um, you know, for the future uh, or deforestation, all of these sort of 
tragedy of the commons type situations are created by these like misaligned game theoretic incentives mm -hmm. um, as, as well as things like arms races you know the fact that we ended up with 60,000 nuclear weapons on earth far more than we would ever need to like maintain mutually assured destruction is again because it's like the the, the game theory dictates it if your opponent does you know builds up a stronger arsenal now you've got to do it and now they've got to do it and so on so it's like it, it's these like screwed up short-term incentives that each individual person is technically rational for following, but if everyone does them, creates these like bad outcomes for the world. That's kind of what this Moloch thing is. Um, and that's what it's sort of become synonymous with. And I was, you know, I'm sure like you guys, just generally appalled at the direction that the media has been taking over the last few years. I mean, I mean, it's, if it bleeds, it leads has been like a strategy they've been using since whenever, right? But it, it feels like since the internet and certainly since social media that the, the competition dial has been turned up and it, it feels like even the really respectable papers are leaning more and more into like clickbaity, rage-baity tactics in order to maintain their, their market share, essentially. And so it's the same kind of mechanism. Like, you know, you're an editor and you notice that your uh, user, you, you know, your readership numbers are like waning compared to your competitors, and you notice all your competitors are now doing like more, like slightly more clickbaity stuff. Well, now you kind of have to do it too, right? Because um, if you don't, you're going to get left behind them. And this is again this same me Moloch mechanism. So yeah, I, I made like a whole little short film about it. It's very good. I really enjoyed watching it. And the interesting thing to me is that for a while there was the narrative, well. The mainstream media is dying, corrupt, blah, 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 which is true. Mm -hmm. The new media is the answer. And I think there's an element of that that can potentially be true, but new media also is subject to various algorithms and various incentives that clearly... I mean, I look at some very popular YouTubers who comment in our space on stuff, at the, just the titles and thumbnails, and I'm like, if I just ingested that for a week... Mm -hmm. I don't think I'd be a very happy, emotionally stable person. Right. You know, they are doing, you know, and every now and again, we'll have a thumbnail that says something along those lines. But I'm just saying it's, it seems to me like while the new media potentially offers a solution, it is subject to many of the same flaws and uh, perverse incentives. Yeah, it's just a big old attention game, right? Everyone is trying to compete for each other's attention, whether it's um, big media companies, whether it's individual influencers, people, um, even like government orgs, you know, NGOs, everyone is trying to get their voice heard. And so it incentivizes people to do whatever tactics are best at doing that. And it seems like the best emotions for going viral, I mean, they're certainly not like <laughs> cool-headedness or nuance, <laughs> yeah. right? It's, it's fear, rage, um, and then the occasional, like, really, like, sort of exciting, happy story. But it, it, rage in particular, even more than fear, is, a, is um, uh, like a sort of action-triggering uh, emotion. And because the uh, business models, not only of, you know, influencers, but also mainstream media now, is more like, how can you maximize impressions? How, you want an active emotion that encourages people to go out and, like, share and comments, and that's why rage is just so useful. And the most effective way of triggering rage is like getting people well, you know, whipped up into a tribal frenzy. And so it's this, I think, 
you know, this, this like incentive structure is a big part of why we're seeing such incredible polarization. Um, you know, it's hard to say where did the polarization start? It's been, there was this really cool, um, gra like, uh, like chart that was posted. Um, I'll try and send it to you guys. Uh, that showed how it looked like, I called it the mitosis of Congress. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you saw it. It's like... No, but do um, send it to us. We'll yeah. put it in. Yeah, it's like Democrats and Republicans over the years, like how much sort of overlap there was in like opinion and, you know, it was in aggregate. And just over time, it's become more and more and more polarized until the point now it's like there's basically no overlap ever. And what's interesting, though, is that this, this process started before the internet. So I don't think the internet is the cause but it's basically just turned up the acceleration because it's, you know, the tails were already coming apart. It's just that, um, it, yeah, it, it's like it's turned up the competition dial and everyone's leaning into it harder and harder. It's really interesting that you say that because if I think back to our country of the UK and we're talking about generating rage, I mean, who did that better than the tabloid press in the 80s and the 90s? I mean, they were masters of it. There's a Netflix series out about David Beckham and David Beckham during the World Cup, he got sent off for <laughs> basically a little kick out at an Argentine player who then made a meal out of it. And then he became a national hate figure. The, the Daily Mirror put a dartboard with his face on it and they generated this campaign against him mm. where he became the most hated man in the UK. So it's it's been going on for a long time. I just, what I find interesting is how in a way, these mainstream media outlets are doing this even more because they realise they're becoming less and less relevant. Yeah, I, I completely agree. They, I mean, it, that, that's the thing. It, like, I'm angry at them for doing it, you know, when it, particularly like the BBC, right? And to be fair, I think they have held on perhaps the longest out of all the outlets. But, you know, there are certain things, particularly like, I see them make articles around the tech space or something like that. Areas that I know, mm -hmm. and I'm like, okay, it's very clear that you have a particular political slant. Usually they, they lean left, not always, but... Um, that interview between Elon Musk and the BBC journalist, where the BBC journalist ran out of questions. Like, I'm like, we, we, we will spend the next year working incredibly hard to get Elon on the show, and we would, like, be desperate for every extra minute of time. And this guy just wanted to attack him, and then you ran out of attack questions. Well, like, oh, okay, I'm bored now. <laughs> it, it, it was unbelievable. You've got one of the most relevant men on the planet and you run out of things to say. Yeah. Yeah, it's not ideal. No. <laughs> <laughs> well but said. But more, more generally, like, yeah, it, it just feels like there's this, this force, like a razor blade coming up through the fabric of reality, of like shared reality that mm. is trying to like bifurcate everything. Mm. That's what this, again, I keep calling it Moloch, you know, I, it's helpful to almost think of it as a kind of agentic entity. That, what does like, that mean, sorry? Like something, it, it, I'm not saying it actually there is a force that wants us to fight, mm -hmm. but it's almost helpful to think of it as there is this like demon that is like, want, it just, it, its lifeblood is people being at war and people arguing and people fighting and the world doing badly because we aren't able to coordinate. And that's the sort of outcome of this, because like we're, the, the type of problems the civilization is moving into, you know, I have a background in philanthropy and like, a, you know, global catastrophic risk. I sort of work in like semi in research in that, but certainly in like communicating about it. And almost all these problems, whether it's, you know, 
future pandemics, and there will be worse ones than COVID, um, uh, or climate change, or any of these big, really big problems, they're all a result of us not being able to really coordinate effectively. If we could coordinate well, then they would be relatively trivial. Like we've known roughly what we need to do to mitigate climate change, you know, or at least temper it. But we haven't been able to get our act together to do it because there's so many incentives for everyone to defect each time. It's like, well, okay, you know, you're a poor country who's trying to get grow their GDP and they've got a bunch of coal. Of course, like, they, what are they meant to do? Like, you know, this is the fastest way to lift our people out of poverty. But technically, they are defecting from like the global optimum, which is no one uses coal, right? And like, uses perhaps a slightly more expensive but cleaner source of energy. Um, and so the, the problem with this like media issue in particular, the fact that like the media are becoming increasingly polarized, everything is more optimized towards like rage and like volatility and, 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 and hype, unnecessary like hyperbole and that kind of stuff, is that now, you know, okay, yes, you'll get like little echo chambers where people really, really trust their particular news source. But on average, the average person just doesn't know where to go to get reliable information anymore. Mm. It's really, really hard. And if we can't like collectively make sense of these difficult problems, how the fuck are we going to then like communicate and coordinate on actual reasonable solutions? Which is one of the reasons why like, you know, I think COVID was always going to be too, um, it was so transmissible. That was, the cat was out of the bag really as soon as that, you know, it took them too long to, it took governments too long to realize they needed to do something. And, and then in the end, they ended up going crazy. Um, you know, they acted too slowly in the beginning and then they lingered with stupid solutions for too long. Um, but if we can't have a shared understanding of reality and we have a media system, which is meant to, like the purpose of the media is to, you know, in an ideal world, inform people about the, the nature of reality so that you can get like, a healthy parallax of views and come to like sane conclusions kind of as a hive mind. If the media are doing the exact opposite of that, like making people whipped up into frenzies and splitting them apart, then we can't coordinate on these problems. So, Well, you make really good points. I mean, one of the things you said though that I think probably isn't true though is I don't think the function of the media, at least one in terms of observable behavior, is to inform people. I think politics, culture, and everything to do with those things has now become entertainment. Mm. The media is entertainment. The news is entertainment. Uh, people don't tune into the news to find out what the facts are. They find out to get the emotional hit. Right, it's like a dopamine source. Yes, mm. you know, and the tribal rage that comes with it, uh, obviously, is a very powerful, stim you know, it's a drug. Um, but I, I'm curious to, to, to talk about this concept of shared reality because I suppose We've got to a point where, where wherever you think, I mean, there's, you know, this is why the trans debate has become so prominent because you're just going, it's two groups of people who can't even agree on, on something as, as basic as biology, right? And so, I mean, how do we have a shared reality if there are people who, who, who can't define what a woman is and there's other people who think it's the... Do, do you see what I'm saying? Right, I mean... <sighs> I don't know. I think with, with, with issues like that, like almost every cultural issue is the reason why it's so front and center, even though in theory it shouldn't be, you know, like there's far bigger issues in the world about 100%. like, you know, trying to define what is or what isn't a woman. Like it's... Um, Not to some people. Let, no. <laughs> 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 the feminists would, would disagree with you. But yeah. uh, let me, the thing is, 
I agree with you that in terms of the issue itself, it's insignificant compared to the problems we face. However, I would argue if you have a disagreement about the very concept of truth at that basic sure. level, right. that is like, whoa. Yeah, no, and, and, and you're right. It, it points to, on this, and this is the thing, uh, so whether it's trans stuff, whether it's um, the debate over capitalism, all of these different like cultural hot topics, mm. that I think the reason why they are so, so sort of successful in meme space, again, if each like war topic is in its own like entity, is because there are genuinely like valid perspectives from both sides and like any that which is going to create tension like where because the system like because the media the way the their incentive structures are set up they are opt you know they are in, being funneled into focusing on whatever topic will get the most clicks and views and th thus anything that has the maximum amount of tension because there are conflicting arguments and viewpoints they are like messy things like you know Yes, I am someone who believes strongly in, in, you know, I think biology is the closest thing, you know, it's one of our solid paths to reality. At the same time, I very fundamentally believe that people should be free to live and, and choose how they express themselves. As long as they don't hurt other people. As long as they don't, yeah, sure. Yeah. But like, I, so these are two fundamental things, but they are like, you know, that creates tension. You know, there will be certain things where someone's choice, back, like, butts up against the rights of someone else's. And it's like, what do we do in these? And I, it, it, I think in part why these issues have taken off so much is because, let's think, like, you know, like the, the, the trans issue thing, it became, because it's not like it's a new concept, right? The, the concept of trans people have been around for at least, you know, there's been like writings of it for like certainly the last century. But... It's like the media latched onto it because it was like it, the media machine, this entity that wants to just like keep the, the wheels churning and maximize profit, noticed, oh, this is a thing, this is a potential trigger point. Let's lean into this. And then it became more and more inflamed than it needed to be. Um, is that so? Uh, I'm really curious to explore this with you. So this is why I'm pushing back. Um, we are kind of in the media and we talk about that issue quite a lot. Now I can tell you from a personal perspective, why I am interested in it. I'm interested in it because I think truth matters. And what we are trying to optimize for here is the truth. So when someone says, you know, abracadabra, Stacy, I'm now a different person. I respect your right to call yourself whatever the hell you want. But as you say, it butts up against the rights of other people. And also there are truth claims being made right. in that discussion. And I'm like, if we can't even agree about truth at this basic level, how are we going to solve any problem? So to me, I, I understand your perspective, and I bet you there's lots of media outlets that have focused in on it because they're like, this is where you get the clicks. Mm. But for me, it's like, while you know some children are being hurt by this process, and while we can't agree on truth, we have to get somewhere on this issue. We have to find a way to resolve those tensions, which are right, exist. But truth matters. Right. The thing that I would want to talk about when we're talking about the media is personal responsibility. And look, you can argue that these corporations, these organizations are evil, you know, they're manipulating us. And that very well may that may very well be true. But there's also a part of it is you have agency and you are allowing yourself to be manipulated. No, it's a very good point. Um, the this guy, I can, Patrick Ryan came up with this term, psychosecurity. And he, he's been saying like, the 
biggest issue of this decade, in his opinion, I'm not sure if I would completely agree, but that we all need to be thinking about and working on is this idea of psychosecurity. Same as you'd have cybersecurity for your computer or your physical security for your house or whatever, we need psychosecurity to protect ourselves from the increasingly powerful manipulation tools that are flying about on the internet. Mm -hmm. And whether these tools are being used because someone is evil or whether these tools are being used because they're simply stuck in a like... Um, you know, a for-profit incentive game that makes you, you know, they're funneling, they're trying to just maximise their profits. So it's like more the game that's evil. It, it, it doesn't really matter. The point is we're spending more and more time on these devices and these devices have not really been built for our, like, mental health. They've been built for, again, kind of either, you know, maximising profits or maximising, you know, just getting people to stay on them for as long as possible. And so how do we build these psychological defences against these various things? Um, whether it's like TikTok trying to just turn you into a fucking drooling uh, moron, just scrolling a thing, or the media trying to turn you into a like foaming at the mouth, politically polarised, rabid person. It's, it's how do we build up these sort of psychological defences without going full Amish and going like, okay, no more phones for me. Yeah. It might be, that's right. And the thing is, is that AI is going to make this more, like to speed all this up because... You know, AI is like, it's such a broadly useful technology. If you can hack intelligence itself, then anything that, anything that there's an incentive to use intelligence for, it will get used for. And that includes all the really good stuff, solving all these big problems, but also speeding up the existing problems we have. Like, it'd be terrifying to think, you know, if like all the really partisan news, news outlets suddenly got AI, you know, really personalised AIs for each individual user to get them to keep getting even more and more angry. That's the way things are trending. Wow. Yeah. Like, that, every company on earth is waking up to the fact that AI is like, there's going to be an AI tool to speed up their company, and that means all the good ones, but also all the, like, bad ones, and, and, and even the criminal ones. Criminal enterprises will soon have access to AI for whatever crappy thing is they want to do. Casinos wanting to addict people to slot machines, like... I mean, that, those are already sort of yeah. <laughs> dopamine hijacking enough, but that kind of thing. I mean, that, arguably, that's what social media is. It's our first, like, interaction uh, on a broad scale with, like, rudimentary AI. Because it's, you know, they might have started out really basic algorithms, but these things are getting more and more intelligent, more and more personalised. Like, my Twitter feed... Damn, that shit knows exactly. Same with my Instagram as well. My Instagram is like my... Uh, Twitter is what makes me all like fired up and like intellectually interested in something. And Instagram is all the things that just like... When I just want to chill out and like, you know, I want to be entertained on the toilet. It's just, here's funny, <laughs> here's funny animal doing that. Here's silly thing there. Um, they're so tailored to my brain because I've been freely giving them my information all this time. And it's AI is just... As AI gets better, this is going to get stronger and stronger and stronger. And that does not sound like a good thing. Doesn't seem like it. No. We'll get back to the episode in a minute. But first, we want to tell you about our sponsor, Fume. If you want to break your bad habit, you can forget about having to go cold turkey. There's now a better way. We're talking about Fume. It's spelled F-U-M and pronounced Fume, which makes no sense. Anyway. Not everything in a bad habit is wrong, so instead of a dramatic, uncomfortable change, why not just remove the bad from your habit? Fume is an innovative, award-winning flavoured air device that does just that. You can trade breathing in nasty chemicals for breathing in fresh air. 
Instead of vapor, fume uses flavored air. Instead of electronics, fume is completely natural. And instead of harmful chemicals, fume uses delicious flavors. It's a habit you're free to enjoy and makes replacing your bad habit easy. Your fume comes with an adjustable airflow dial and is designed with movable parts and magnets for fidgeting, which gives your fingers something to do, which is helpful for de-stressing and anxiety while breaking your bad habit. I'll be honest, I wasn't sure what to expect with fume, but they're actually more flavorful than I thought, and it actually feels fresh. The feel of them is nice. It's well-weighted, perfectly balanced, and they're made from real wood, which feels nice and looks great too. Fume has served over 150,000 customers and has thousands of success stories. There's no reason that can't be you. Join Fume in accelerating humanity's breakup from destructive habits by picking up the journey pack today. Head to tryfume.com and use code TRIG to save 10% off when you get the journey pack today. That's tryfum.com and use code TRIG, T-R-I-G, to save an additional 10% off your order today. Give it a go. It might just help you kick that bad habit. Back to the interview. And this is the thing that I'm worried about because I think it was a few months ago when Elon and a few people, they signed a document requesting that there's a moratorium on AI. And as noble as that is, and I would like that, the reality is that's simply not realistic. No, it's going to, well, again, it's like a coordination problem. Mm. Um, because also, like, how do you, you know, where do you draw the line? Technically, Google Maps is an AI. AI is so broad as a term. So it, you need to, like, they, I think the purpose of that letter was just to, like, raise attention. Um, and it did a good job. It definitely did a good job. Um, you know, the type of regulation that I think makes the most sense in the, in the interim while we're figuring this out is, like, Regulation on front, what are called frontier models, which are like the, just the leading most powerful ones. So like technically, GPT-4 was a frontier model six months ago. Whatever is currently being worked on now, that's the upgrade to that, is now a frontier model. And the thing is, with these type of things where like, you know, I, I think it was pretty irresponsible for OpenAI to go and just release, or, or even like uh, Microsoft, and they were using Bing, they did that first actually. To there's no way they could know what the downstream, and we still don't know what the downstream effects are of having such a powerful language manipulation tool released to the internet, released to a billion people, nine, you know, eight billion people. Um, and to be fair, there is no way they can know until they do it. So, like, these companies are going to be just running real time experiments on humanity. And if it turns out that these experiments are actually have a bunch of unintended consequences, we won't know until it's, you know, either too late. I'm not saying that like the current models are a risk of extinction. They're not. But there's maybe like downstream second, third order effects, again, contributing to like not knowing, you know, polluting the information ecosystem, this kind of stuff, um, that we won't know until they've become so integrated into the economy that they're almost impossible to extract again. And that's the thing. Our economy is getting more and more integrated into AI. Or vi sorry, vice versa. So some like... One one like sane thing that could be done is like more regulation on frontier models because that will a that sort of make it it's putting the responsibility on the most powerful people within AI the big the biggest companies so minimizes the risk of re regulatory capture it's only really affecting the big boys not the little the little guys can still de carry on developing um, and those are also the models that are most likely to have like unseen risks and big 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 consequences but in terms of this like wider question of like AI 
ex like speeding up the misalignment that's already inherent within our sort of economic system. Mm. I don't know. Like it's just so hard because it's like it, it, it's like <laughs> it's like a game of whack-a-mole, but instead of like twenty little things, it's like twenty thousand. And it's it's also from a personal point of view. More and more, I've just had the realization that the the amount of time that I spend online is also proportionate to the, the, the amount of misery that I feel. I've realized as I get older that the, more, the less time I spend online, the happier that I am. Because life really is all about connection. Yeah. It is. That's why people love podcasts. Because it's about people connecting in a way that we rarely do anymore. Mm -hmm. Sometimes because our lives are so busy, the only time in my day when I actually get to sit and have a conversation with another human being for a prolonged period of time where my phone is off is to do this. Wow. And that's fundamentally unnatural. Yeah. And I think more and more that in order for us to be happier, we need to kind of just take a step back. And, and have that personal responsibility. Yeah, and there's like genuine wisdom in the saying, go out and touch grass. Mm. Yeah. Like truly, everyone laughs about it, but like, no, people are so disconnected, not only from each other physically, just from the physical physical reality. Digi the digital realm is, it is, a, it is a universe of sorts, but it's not a universe that we evolved out of. Yeah. Or it, and and it, it almost feels to me like it's like this this reality that's growing stronger that's like feeding off our consciousness in some yeah. way. I like in my video I did this thing like because that's like how I feel sometimes when I'm just like on my phone and or I, I'm sitting with my friends. Then I remember like 15 years ago we'd be sitting around and we'd be all like up in each other's stuff, you know, talking or whatever. And now half the time like the, these things are like like they're like an appendage on our arm that is just like a parasite sucking all of our attention into and we're just like they're feeding them as opposed to them adding to us that's that's the thing it's like how do we it feels like that's the trend mm. would how you not also that? agree that I, I think we we love to bang on about how evil social media is but it's also fucking great it's fucking great so how many friendships do do we have, all of us, right. because we're on social media? How many amazing people have we connected with? How many amazing things have we learned? How have we improved our understanding of the world, right? And I think the same thing is the case with, with AI. Uh, I'd be curious to hear kind of what you think are the biggest risks, but also the biggest rewards mm -hmm. that will come from that. Yeah, so, I mean, there's there's like kind of four different categories of risk. There's the... Um, the unintended consequences type stuff. So like you build a, such a, like an incredibly powerful model that it, you know, especially let's say it learns to, or you, it doesn't even have to learn to, people are like already trying to build models which can edit their own code and like recursively learn. So like that opens up like a pretty obvious can of worms, at least to me, you know, it's like now something can basically evolve itself. It's going to be doing it at a far, faster rate than any form of biology. So that's like the whole sort of like Darwinian type thing. And it doesn't have to turn evil and want to kill us. It's just like, it might be so good and fast. At, uh, you know, its goals might not be perfectly aligned with ours and it would therefore perhaps just use all the resources that we need, you know, or our environment is not suitable to its. And, and it wouldn't intend to kill us. It just, we would be a, a byproduct of whatever it continues to do. That's like one category. That's like the most like classic um, extinction risk type thing. 
Um, and so there's I'm, lots of sci-fi when in my sure. youth about this, which is a benevolent AI realizes that the root of human misery is humans. And <laughs> well, that, that. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a very like anthropomorphized version yeah. of it. I think like that's less plausible than just the idea of like an unintended consequence of like, it's like it wants more compute. And the best way to get more compute is to turn every little bit of silicon it can find into chips and that we need we need that silicon for other stuff you know um just you know just biosphere changes that kind of stuff that's that's the, like the extreme sci-fi type thing but then there's the more near-term things again like uh speeding up the misalignment in the system like basically bad you know, not bad companies but like companies that are just wanting to do their thing maximizing for profits or whatever and now are made even faster and more efficient at doing that at like you know cutting down the rainforest or all these things. And then there's like the bad actor problem. Mm -hmm. So, you know, because like one, one argument people put out for like open sourcing is like, well, if we open source, then we can get um, more people to like be thinking about how to build, incorporate safety. We can hive mind this, which seems nice in principle. But the trouble is if you completely open source a, a very powerful model, um, a model that had been kept closed source, you'd put all these safety measures in. Well, now any bad guy... And the thing is, is that we do have a 1% rate of psychopaths on this planet. And it only take a, even like a percent of a percent of them, you know, if they found a way to make these things, you know, to truly cause the max damage they could, you know, like, think, think like ISIS type mentality people, something like that. Now, like, how do you protect against them? You can't. So there's that sort of category of risk. And then you've got the fourth one, which is... Uh, sort of structural type problems that might come from like basically the sudden shock of such a powerful new technology becoming ubiquitous. So like mass unemployment is a classic mm. one. Yes. Um, you know, we're already starting to see signs of it. And I'm not convinced by the arguments that it will be able to create new jobs fast enough to... Um, fill in the gaps of all the ones it's displacing. Like, it doesn't seem obvious to me that that would be the case. Um, so there's those kind of risks too. Mm -hmm. yeah, and but, this, sorry. sorry, I just wanted to finish yeah. on the benefits. Because, yes. yeah, because yeah. You, you know, in your video, you talk about negativity bias, right? Human right. beings have, we, we prioritize negative information. And I said to you, what are the risks? What are the benefits? You're like, risk, 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 risk. Let's move on. No, you're absolutely <laughs> right. You're right. No, you're totally right. And, and, and that's the difficult thing because there are so many problems that AI can help to solve. Right. You know, like a lot of the environmental issues we have are because we haven't figured out how to have a like more abundant, clean source of energy. Mm -hmm. AI could help us figure out nuclear fusion. So we need it for that. It could help us do with drug discovery. So, it, you know, especially if like there are all these new p potential pandemics on the, on the, um, on the timeline, because that's the thing, again, with AI, it's what you call a dual-use technology. Mm. Not, not all of the different flavors of it are, but certain categories of AI tend to be dual-use. They can be used for good or for bad. But the, I, I kind of am like bipolar on the topic almost <laughs> because, you know, when I spend a lot of time thinking about these coordination issues, you know, like how do we coordinate to, for climate change or whatever, we almost need some kind of super intelligence to help us better coordinate on these things in a way that doesn't also then just leave us like vulnerable to tyranny or nightmarish like type top-down scenarios. So, you know, the, the bull argument for like going all in on AI as quickly as possible is that we won't be able to solve these other problems without it. But then it opens up new cans of worms that might make these existing problems or even brand new ones worse. So it's like, it feels like it's like this 
minefield we have to navigate to get through. But if we get through, then it's like, ah. Yeah, and it's also <laughs> as well, the reality is, is that there are people who, I mean, we don't live in a unipolar world, we live in a multipolar world. And the reality is, is that if we don't invest in AI, China, Russia will do. So that's the classic, yeah, the, the Moloch trap, Yeah, call it. exactly. Totally so we're, right. Yeah, so we're, so we're right back into that. Yeah. But one thing that I really wanted to talk to you about, Liv, moving on, is um, poker, and in particular, strategy. Firstly, how did you get into poker? Because you studied astrophysics at university, and then you became a poker player. Are those connected? Is it mathematics? Uh, no, it was very, very random. Um, mm. I graduated... Really didn't want to get a real job. Um, <laughs> I was trying to do anything I could, and I started applying for game shows in the in in the UK. And like what type of game shows? Just any of them that would accept me. Basically, I, um, I was on Golden Balls. Oh really? Um, yeah. Okay, that type of game show. That one, um, <laughs> I, I I I defected. I stole. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I feel feel bad about that one. Um, what else? Uh, Codex with Tony Robinson. Don't know okay. if you saw that. Yeah. That was great. Yeah. Um, they locked you in the British Museum overnight and you had to solve all these clues. Um, but anyway, one of the first shows, in fact, the first show I got on was one that said, could you use your powers of skill and deception to win £100,000? I was like, that's a lot of money. Yes, please. Um, so, yeah, and I got selected as one of the five contestants. And then they did this big reveal that they were actually going to teach us how to play poker. Mm-hmm. And like the loose premise was like which personality type is best suited for the game, and I was the professor, as they called me. Um, and I didn't win the show, but I just absolutely fell in love with with the game. Um, you know, at the time I also wanted I was really into metal mm-hmm. music and wanted to be a sort of be a rock star. <laughs> and I was like, oh wait, this is probably easier in many ways because I wasn't that good at guitar. Um, at, a way to like, I wanted to travel the world basically and live a very ridiculous life and poker seemed like a fun way to do that. Wow, okay. So, how much of it is luck? How much of it is strategy in order to become a good poker player? So, it depends on the time horizon you're talking about. Like, if the three of us sat and played for half an hour, it's basically all luck. Mm -hmm. Assuming you know roughly how to play. but if we played for a week, I'm going to win probably 98% of the time, something like that. Um, I, again, I don't know how good you guys are. Maybe one of you are very good. No, no, uh, I, think you, I think you underestimate <laughs> the, your success rate in that scenario. Um, I think it'd be closer to 100%. Right, so, so basically there's, there's a lot of luck in you know, any given hand, there's a lot of luck and randomness because the deck, deck is shuffled between each hand, et cetera. You can't control what cards you get. Um, but the more you play, the more decision points there are Mm-hmm. the more any edge that the better player has accumulates. And how much of it is about reading people's uh, emotional cues, tells, etc.? How important is that? Um, if you're just some purely yeah. analytical nerd that can't read people at all, can you be a successful poker player? Yeah, so let's put it this way. The best poker player on earth is the most analytical nerd you can imagine because it's an AI. It's an AI that doesn't no human emotion, it doesn't read people in that way. It's just so good at calculating the, like, the game theory, basically, the, these Nash equilibria. Um, it's so good at that that it is able to beat the very best humans on Earth consistently. If they were to sit and click buttons against this thing for infinity, this thing would crush them. 
So what that says is that the game really at its core is a game of maths. Wow. Yeah. Um, now, that's not to say that there isn't this like level of meta information that you can use. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is how the game's changed. Like when I first learned to play, and certainly like the decade before, like in the 90s, um, the best players in the world were incredibly, um, they were like these like old school hustler type guys, you know, like the classic in, you know, in, in the casino with the cigar. Um, they would make these sort of inspired, intuitive plays that they couldn't even explain why they did them. They just had really strong gut feelings and their, their gut feelings were really uh, like really accurate, at least more accurate to everyone else. So that's why they were so good. But as, you know, the game moved into online poker more and we started having like more data basically to synthesize and analyze, and then we started building software to analyze that data, the game became more and more of a science and less of an art. And it's sort of trended towards this very mathematical style. Now that's not to say that good, very, you know, the very best players these days know how to do both types. They are very mathematical, they understand all the game theory, but they're also great like readers of human behavior. Those are the very best players. Um, but still, in, technically, they would lose to the machine. That's how good it is. And so, how useful is that ability to read other people in poker to normal life? Like, can you tell what we're thinking now? <laughs> I, mean, I can't tell what you're thinking. Like, what, what you learn in poker, and I think this is true in almost anything, any kind of, oh, there's the fly. <laughs> um, what, what you're really looking for is figuring out what someone's baseline behavior is mm -hmm. when they are not like doing the activity. So they're not in a poker hand or they're not in a negotiation. You know, are they a naturally relaxed person? Are they quite tense? Are they extroverted, introverted, etc.? And then you want to see how they deviate from their baseline when you're actually in, in play. So some, yeah, so, so, some people are naturally like very intense when they're playing and then all of a sudden they become all lang languid and something. That, that, that can be sometimes some relevant information. But the trouble is, as well, is that fear and excitement present themselves very similarly. So that's a real tricky one when you're like, so, you know, we're playing and you go all in, put me to the test. And I can see your heart is going and, and you're breathing fast and you're like, your mouth is clearly dry. That could be excitement or fear. So one little thing I've found helpful is sometimes to like let, just like make someone sit there and sweat it for a few minutes, like pay attention to how they are after three minutes or two minutes, however long I can stretch it out for. Because if they are excited, you know, if they have a good hand, typically the, that excitement will wane. You know, they've, they've made their big action and now they're just waiting to see what you do. And they're, they don't really, there's nothing more they have to worry about. So they'll typically calm down. But if someone is bluffing, their heart's still going after two minutes and that's still, you know, they're still very, very stressed. So that can be one way of discerning. Um, but again, like the main thing is that there's no one size fits all. Uh, and you just have to be, um, it, it's something that you really can't explain. You, people just have to gather through experience. And, and I, I was going to say, Liv, how does mathematics work with poker? You get given your hand. How do you then discern what the best play is with your hand? Because obviously you don't know the hands of other people. Right. So it's all about... This is this concept called like ranges. We're going to get quite specific here. So, you know, you're playing Texas Hold'em. Yep. You get two cards out of a deck of 52. There's 1,326 possible combinations of two cards that you could get. I hope those numbers are right. It's been a long time. 
If they're not, they're not. I'm pretty sure that's the number. And so all you know, so to begin with, you know, I have two cards out of a possible combination of that. That's one combination out of 1326. So that's like right now my range is 100% of uncertainty to you. But then let's say, you know, I, you raise and I now re-raise. Well, now you can narrow down that range because I'm probably not going to be re-raising with like, let's say the bottom 40% of, of those cards, right? Um, there might be some and so on. But over, as the hand progresses, you will get, your, your job is to try and extract as much information out of me as you can, while at the same time giving as little to me as possible, because I'm trying to do the same thing, right? So you're trying to narrow down the range of cards your opponent could conceivably have by you know, putting them to the test or seeing how they behave, um, while keeping the range of perceived cards that you have as wide as possible. So that's what you're trying to do in, in, fundamental, you know, in fundamental terms. And then there's basically sort of mathematics you can do within that. Let's say I bet um, 100 into a pot of 100, you know, the existing 100. So now you have to call 100 to win 200. So you're getting two to one, right? And now you can see this stuff like basically pot odds and then like these combinatorial, combinatorial um, calculations you can do to see if you're getting the right kind of price. Um, I won't go into the minutiae wow. of that, but that's the kind of stuff. So, yeah. so th there's a real strategy behind it. And the question I think that is really re relevant for everybody watching this, and particularly people who aren't interested in poker, is has that helped you to strategize in life? And also, what are the best poker strategies that you can take for real life yeah. and that people can Im implement? Um, I would like to think it has because... Like one of the main things poker teaches you to do is to just like be comfortable with uncertainty, be comfortable with just seeing things probabilistically, mm -hmm. which actually leans into kind of brings us full circle back to the, the the this this issue that we have with today's modern media, right? We don't know what's quite true. You'll some you know oh they found aliens you know the Mexican Congress are being shown this this alien shape. Well. It, What's the likelihood that it's real? What's the likelihood it's not? Okay, that's maybe a silly example because that was pretty obvious that it was not real. But, you know, some of these things you truly can't know and you might never find out what the truth is. And so you, what poker teaches you is to be like, okay, well, I'm like, I feel like 30% of the time they have this kind of hand and then 40% of the time this and then 30% of the time they have that or whatever. You know, you're, you're very used to thinking about things probabilistically. And with this like gray scale. And that's the most useful skill by far, because um, <laughs> I mean, even things like uh, trying to take it, you know, decide whether to park illegally somewhere, not that I would advocate that, but you know, you're running late for a meeting, shit, I don't want to get a parking ticket, but I don't want to be late for my meeting. What I would do is go, okay, well, what's the probability I'll get a ticket while I'm parked here? Uh, okay, it's probably like, you know, I'm here for half an hour. It's probably only like 10%, okay. How much is the ticket if I get it? It's $100. All right, so that's an expected, expected loss of $10. Would I be willing to pay $10 to park right now and be on time for my meeting? Yes, okay, I'll park. You know, that's the kind of thing, these, these expected value calculations, which you don't learn in school. And they're so useful, they're so important. Um, so yeah, living, living with just grayscale and, and probability is probably the number one thing. We'll be back with our guest in a minute, but first we want to take a moment to talk about our partners, Give, Send, Go. 
If you need to raise funds online but don't want to hand over your money to faceless big tech corporations, then GiveSendGo is a place to do it. GiveSendGo is a leading crowdfunding website where thousands of people in the US, the UK, Australia and Canada raise funds for anything from business ventures and medical expenses to personal needs, churches and funeral costs. On GiveSendGo, you can raise money for whatever you need. We've met the people at GiveSendGo and we can tell you that they're absolutely aligned with us here at Trigonometry on our approach to free speech. They've proved time and again they won't cave to the mob, they don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk, unlike other big tech companies. And that's why we're proud to partner with them. They, like us, believe that with openness and honesty we'll create more understanding and ultimately more harmony in the world. GiveSendGo is absolutely free to use. With other crowdfunding sites, you'll pay between 5 and 10% of the money you raise. GiveSendGo charges no money at all to use their platform. They believe you should be able to keep all the money that you raise. Starting a campaign on GiveSendGo is easy and intuitive. Go to GiveSendGo.com today. That's GiveSendGo.com to start raising money for whatever's important to you. And now, back to the interview. The next thing is like learning how to like deal with luck and randomness. Because one of the hardest things in life is like when, you know, let's say we have a big success at something. Is it because we did a really good job? You know, we, we were just better than everyone else or was it more because we got lucky or some combination of those two? And again, like poker, it's like, I won very early on in my career, this huge tournament, uh, this European poker tour tournament and I, after that, you, you, basically, <laughs> for a period of time, for the next six months, because it was such a big tournament, I got so much attention for winning it. I just assumed I was God's gift. And I stopped studying the game as hard. I started playing in bigger tournaments, like riskier tournaments, etc. And my win rate just went like absolutely plummeted to the floor. And that's because I got fooled by randomness a little bit. Like I obviously did a lot of stuff right to win that tournament, but I also had so much luck on my side. And our egos have a tendency, or, you know, our, the narrative we tell ourselves is we like to take credit for our successes and outsource blame on luck. You know, oh, I, got, I just got unlucky when, when things don't go well. And poker teaches you to basically be like honest with yourself. You have to be epistemically humble and, and like really scrutinize, you know, okay, what, you know, what, what was the cause of this? Was it because I, was, I did things right or because I got lucky? And therefore it trains you to be more focused on process as opposed to outcome and results. Like if you develop a good process that's kind of agnostic to whether luck is on your side or not, then that's the benchmark you should measure yourself against. So that's the other one. And then the third one is like, don't overprivilege your intuition in situations where it, your intuition is not best suited. Um, because again, like the... The natural thing, if I'm playing in a, if I was playing poker and, and I couldn't, you know, my brain wasn't working well and I couldn't think through all these combinations and so on, is go, well, I'll just go with my gut. And after 15 years of playing, my gut was fairly reliable, but certainly for the first five, 10 years of playing, my gut was not very good. And so that would be, um, I would often use my intuition as an excuse to just not do the boring number crunching. Mm -hmm. And again, people, I, I've noticed that's a, a, a trend that a lot, that seems to be widespread in the world. You know, you look at these memes online, um, if you search for like intuition, 
everything, the internet says, oh, trust your intuition 100% of the time. It's always right. And it's like, that's just bullshit. You know, after even 15 years of playing poker and thinking I have great intuitions, I would still have an error rate. I'd be so sure that someone was bluffing me. And then it turns out that actually they had a really good hand. And, but my gut was like screaming, no, call, call. And it was wrong. So that's the other one. Be careful of like over-relying on, on, on intuition and instinct um, in situations where really you just need to do the, like, the, the boring number crunching. And it's such a powerful message because so many people make decisions that are emotional, not based in rationality. And then it turns out that they're terrible decisions because you're not making an objective choice because you're, let, you're letting your emotions hijack your decision-making process. Yeah, and, and, and the reason, you know, if you're just doing stuff purely on instinct all the time, you can't go in and then scrutinize what your thought process was. At least if it's like you're doing something like logically, you can like look back at it and go, okay, that's probably where my bias and my emotion clouded this bit. But when it's like pure intuition stuff, You've got, it's, it's, a, it's a black box. You don't know what's going on in there. And, and it, they're still vulnerable to, to emotional bias and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. I wish I had like a clean, clean answer to it like how you do answer. it. Yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> I'm curious, uh, is it possible to control your own tells? Um, is I'd that like something to... <laughs> poker players work on? You do. Um, I mean, again, like I should caveat this. I haven't, I, I quit poker like four years ago, mm. you know, properly now. Um, I'm not sure what the like latest strategies people are doing. Um, you definitely like, I would practice. It's not like I would sit in front of the mirror or anything like that because I would watch videos of myself. Like, you know, if I played a final table, I would then go back and watch it afterwards if it was televised to see, oh, okay, so this is how I was behaving there. Good to know. I'm gulping a lot and I'm clearly, you know, when I was running a huge bluff. Um, but, you know, a good poker face is basically something that's just, it doesn't have to be a deadpan. It's just something that is natural to you. Some people are naturally very animated. So you just want to train yourself. Basically, it's through exposure therapy of being in like these stressful, high stakes situations. The more you're in them, the, the less you're going to have the flight or fight response. So that's really the training you can do. Um, you know, you can't... You can't train your poker face but if you're like for a huge final table until you've actually just been there and done it and felt how it felt and dealt with all the physiological annoyances that your body throws at you. <laughs> I, remember the I remember the first time I did question time, I was completely calm on my way there. The dry right. Francis came with me, completely calm when we got there, completely calm as we did the, the, the warm up. Complete. And then when it came to the actual show, I suddenly couldn't move my body for like five minutes. I could just do this. And my, the rest of my body was just like rigidly stuck Nightmare. in one place. So, but then as the show went on, I relaxed into it. But it's amazing how like it just flips and it's not something that you mm -mm. truly control. Second time you do it, you are actually relaxed. Yeah. 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 Um, I, 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 uh, I still, you know, I do a lot of public speaking these days and I still get like incredible stage fright each time. Um, I did just for the first time try beta blockers, you know, which are like, they're meant to help just like slow down the heart rate and so on, just like to help with the physiological symptoms. And they did actually really help. So I kind of wish I'd discovered these long ago when I was playing poker. Um, but yeah, it's, I don't know. So I, I think some people's bodies, there's a lot of variation between people as well. Yes. Like, Expo, you know, practice obviously helps, but a big thing I learned is just like, I, I, I learned to accept that I'm just always going to have a high heart rate um, when I'm stressed. And that's just how my body responds. Um, I 
having long hair would actually help in poker. I would do this a lot to just try and hide it. <laughs> um, but yeah, just it's kind of get comfortable with the fact that you are going to be stressed sometimes. And there's just like, the worst thing you can do is being stressed about being stressed, right? Yeah, so. yeah it's practicing acceptance. Yeah. I think that's the most important thing. When you are in a situation and you feel stressed, you go, okay, why am I feeling stressed? And most of the time, it's because you're catastrophizing. And actually, once you analyze it and you take a step back and go, this is just an emotion, that's all it is. I think that's a really, well, it's certainly with me, that's a really good way I've found to deal with that. That realizing that you're not your emotions, you know? This is just a thing that is temporary. What's the biggest uh, amount of money you won in a tournament? Um, it was that European that, Poker that Tour. One. Yeah, it was 1.25 million euros. It's incredible. It's a good week. It's a good week. I was 25. You were 25, 25. and you got. Thank God you weren't a 25 year old man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, oh, I, I, I was much better. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What did you do with it? Uh, no, I was actually pretty. I was pretty reasonable. Um, I bought a flat in London, um, and then put a bunch of it back into poker. Um, as I said, probably a bunch of it into that six months after where I wasn't <laughs> yeah. playing very well. Did um, you think like? This is the beginning. This is it now. I'm going to be winning like this oh, every yeah. few months yeah. or every week or uh, whatever. I, I thought I was God's gift. I mean, just... so would anyone, really. I mean, to be fair to you, if I was 25 years old and I won a poker tournament where I won 1.25 million euros... You'd be dead. Oh, yeah. And before my inevitable death, I would be a raging dickhead. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I didn't do anything too nuts in terms of lavish spending i mean i just it was more just like what so so after winning that it, the british press speaking of tabloids got hold of it daily mail turned up at my parents house my mum didn't know so she let them in they were taking photos of my like childhood pictures they're all on there now um yeah i was on the front page of like a bunch of tabloids that week because it was, you know, there, there was some angle there. I don't know quite what their angle was. I guess it was just like I was a young, cutish girl who had an interesting story. Um, and that was, I mean, it was the highest high that week. Talk about dopamine spikes, my God. And then it like, once it all sort of settled down, I think I probably had like a big crash as well. Um, and I remember wanting that, having that taste of fame. Uh, that was definitely a thing that like, there was a part of my brain that wanted to get back to. It was like, okay, well, I need the next win so I can keep that going. And then when it didn't come as easily, um, that was interesting to adjust to. Um, and why did you stop? In the end, combination of things. Um, a, the game has gotten so much harder. Really? So much harder. Yeah, well, again, so AI, big part of that. Um, like online poker is basically done for high stakes money. You can play low stakes or whatever, and that's fine. But it, because you can now have an, uh, an AI that is playing effectively in real time, that's far better than anyone else, it's just there's incentive for people to cheat and use them. And so there's that. Then also the average player is just so much better than they used to be because all this like, strategy information has been very democratized. You know, these tools are very easy for anyone to work with now. So the average Joe is just much better at poker. Um, and then thirdly, I just kind of got bored of it as well. I've been doing it for a long time and felt, you know, various forms of itchy feet. Also, it's like, 
you know, the, the ultimate zero-sum game, right, by definition. And I wanted, I felt like I should probably do something else than just that for the rest of my life. That's a little bit more positive sum, a bit more win-win. And plus you got a taste of the, the sort of the celebrity and now you make content. And <laughs> now I'm one of those people. <laughs> um, I try and justify it to myself uh, that I'm doing, you know, I really, really believe in the content that I'm making. Let's put it that way. Yeah, perfect. Um, I, That's a good the, reason to make content. Explaining this, these concepts of like shitty game theory, you know, the, the like competition gone wrong in society and like trying to think of, like get more people thinking about it to like hopefully we'll then hive mind a solution to this. Um, definitely feels you know, like my, my calling. Um, I hate that phrase, but... Uh, Why do you hate that phrase? I don't know, it feels... Because you're British. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. here feels... everyone's like, it's my mission. Right, yeah. I know, yeah. I, yeah. It, 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 and I'm so blessed. Yeah. <laughs> I, can, I can hear my mum, stop boasting, stop bragging. Yeah. Um, but no, I really, really believe in, in, in finding ways to defeat Moloch. Yeah. And I think this is my best way of doing that. I seem to be good at making these little films about it and I've not to pimp my podcast too much, but I just launched this podcast called Win Win, which is about finding win-wins in seemingly win-lose situations. Yeah, and I'm so excited to see the type of guests. I saw the announcement and instantly retweeted it because it, it's going to be great. Uh, on that happy note, uh, before we go to Locals where we ask you some of the questions from our supporters, uh, the last question we always end with is what's the one thing we're not talking about as a society that we really should be? The one thing we are not talking about enough is whether you want to call it Moloch, whether you want to call it coordination problems, uh, multipolar traps, inadequate Nash equilibrium, whatever word means the most to you, the, these forces of um, short-term incentives that are not that are misaligned with what the world actually needs mm. and are creating these race to the bottom spirals within industries or within little sections. Um, we aren't talking about the like the meta level stuff, the, you know, the, the actual fundamental structures of these systems um, sufficiently. Everyone's just too busy pointing fingers going, you did that, therefore you're bad. And it's like, let's focus more on the, you know, it's like basically don't hate the players, hate the game. And how do we fix the game? That's what we're not talking about enough. Livbury, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Uh, head on over to Locals where we continue the conversation with your questions. Why do you think women are so bad at poker? I mean, I think it's a joke. But serious question, women do underperform on every available metric. I'd like to know what you think are a mix of factors that are responsible for this. 